Welcome to Season 2 of This Is Me. My name is Siobhan. In Season 1, we met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we not only have a new logo, but we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you would like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. In this episode, we hear Andy's story. Hi there, I'm Andy Fermo, founder of Invisible Injuries. I'm 41 years old and a father of two and a family man. In 2001, after 10 years in the military, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. There's some stains on your photo. So when you joined the army, did you actually think you would go to war? Yeah, yeah, I did. When I signed up, you know, on the dotted line, uh, Timor had sort of flared up. So that was the start of, of, of a big long campaign mm. for, the, for the Australian army mm. again, post-Vietnam, besides the, the peacekeeping mission. So I knew that at some point, hopefully, you know, I would go and get to serve my country and be deployed. So whether that was war or, or a peacekeeping mission, it was just to be deployed. Like, you know, you, you sign up for a footy team and you want to get, you know, be in the grand final and get the big yeah. Guernsey. That's what I'd signed up for, knowing that at some point, you know, when you sign on, you just go where they tell you. So your role changed when you went overseas, didn't it, within the army? Yeah, yes, it did. But I actually got to perform the role that I'd been training for. So for me, I got qualified as a commando. Um, I got posted to for RAR commando in Sydney. Can you explain to me, because I'm not from an army background, I don't know much about it. What's the commando role like what does that actually mean so the commando is part of what um, uh, the special forces group in the Australian military so there's a there's a few certain roles that are niche within the military and the special forces have a, a distinctive role where the commandos um, are going in a, la- a, high, a large highly trained force in a larger team to be able to execute a mission from upper management, say, like let's put it into into normal terms, upper management has requested some specialist support um, of a large group, so that's what the commandos essentially are. I loved it. You know, the, the job that I had in the military was the best of both worlds. So at that time, we went there and, and, and I got qualified as a commando but what I wanted to do was to retain in my trade so I could still get the best of both worlds yeah. so I was whenever they needed me yeah. to do stuff there with the with the um infantry guys or the grant the the shooters um I, I could dip in and, and do stuff with them and then I could still also it help inspire and, and be part of our trade and 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 still do that job which I absolutely love doing and then once I got to Afghanistan it was amplified because I got to do it on the ground and you had to play pretty much the grand final every single day. Once we'd finished that training, it was pretty much bang, Afghanistan was on. Afghanistan has been used in the past as a terrorist training base, and we are there to deny terrorists that safe haven in the future. I was ecstatic. I was, I was ecstatic, but also I'm like, oh shit, this is, um, this is for real. There's a scary component, 
that would have been an emotion that was way back there because I actually was like, yes, I've, I've got a gig now where, you know, I've been selected to be the team leader. I get to, you know, in a way, um, you know, put forward who I'd like to have on, on my team. Um, you couldn't make that final decision that was up for management, but it's like, okay, this is really cool. And then we're going to get to do the job, you know, um, of, of what we've been training for, which was just an amazing feeling at the time. So you arrive in Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah. So it was really exciting because everyone was getting back into gear to, to get in there. And, and I just remember that we had all the initial stuff. And in, in, our, in, in the big C-17, massive planes. These things could fit cars in them, Siobhan, you know, mm. a few cars side by side. So yeah. we had all this gear that was going over and we were just sitting there as the small sort of pre-force before everyone came in to set everything up as well. So that was really cool. And I just remember just the guys that I was with, you know, it was, it was really exciting. We were all ex- good, good banter on, on the plane. And then as we were coming into land, I just remember seeing the mountains and the, you know, the, the snowy capped peaks. And I'm like, whoa, you know, and as we came into land, it was just a big dirt runway. And I just remember as the ramps slid down, it was summer, so it was hot. And, and you know, sort of when if you've been to the outback and it's been that hot, dry, this was a little bit humid as well. It was, boom, it was in your mm. face. It was hot. <laughs> you know, it was like 45 or nearly 50 degrees wow. in the shade. Within a half an hour, it was like we got a headache. And, and, you know, it was just a surreal feeling that we were actually there. But um, at the same time, because it was still, it was, you know, hot and quiet and not much was doing because we landed sort of midday, um, it was almost like a false sense of security that, you know, we were in a theatre of war and this is a very dangerous place. When you get there, where do you sleep and what's your day look like? Well, we had a special compound within the compound, within the compound. Um big compounds where a whole a multinational force and then the Americans and the Australians and the Dutch were all there. And we had huts on that first trip. Things were still basic, so we were living in huts at that time and then we'd go in and set up all the bunks. So each one of the groups of who were to arrive were set up in their groups so that you were in your teams and then you'd live together and all your stuff was set up. So it was all there, dormitory style, but like in, in the hut. So you went through your routine about, you know, an induction. Here's where you go if there's going to be rockets. This is what you need to do. Um, you know, always have your gear on your, uh, yeah, all, all those little safety things around camp and daily life you get that into you straight away and then it was bang straight on. We didn't muck around with, with what was going on. It's like, all right, guys, here you go. Here's what's happening. Here's the brief. This is what happens if you're going to, you know, if, you're, if we're being attacked. Um, but then here's all the vehicles. This is where everything's going to be. So it was really bang straight on to, into the job. What would you call your group in your camp? It was the camp? special, uh, yeah, so it was, yeah, so our group was, it was a special operations okay. task group. Did you form strong bonds with the people that were in your group? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got your the, the, the big force that you go with, or which is like a, a, what they call a company. So you've got the company, but within that, you have your teams, your smaller teams, and, and you form really, really good, strong bonds with your team. So, you know, um, it, because you're living also in, in each other's pockets, pretty much you, 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 can't, you can't run away. And you felt that you had each other's back? A hundred percent. Whoever was there on that force, you know, if you were in any way a liability... 21 you wouldn't get selected to go and do the job or even if you found they found out afterwards then you'd be replaced because it is a job of consequence and if you didn't have each other's backs especially when we were under contact or under fire from the enemy and you didn't know what to do or you didn't have your mates back it just yeah 
I couldn't even fathom that. Mm. So, I, yeah, we always got each other's backs. Okay. Absolutely. The buddy system, you might have heard of it um, before. Is it, You know, you've got your buddy, um, even when you're under fire, and then you've got your team, and then you've got the company, and then the rest of it comes on afterwards. What's your day look like? Like, What do you do? Are you actually shooting people? Are there bombs going off? What happens? Uh, Within the mission, there's all separate components of things that you need to, like little objectives that you need to do. So it might be part of the the day might have been we'd go out with the force and, and it's hearts and minds. Even hearts and minds as a special forces unit is getting to know the, the people. So we'd go into the village and do our patrol and then we'd have what they called a shura, which was meet up with the village chief and then his group of people, and then you'd sit into the tent. But it was also, besides the hearts and minds, you're actually gathering intel. There'd be other things like going out there and doing patrols for certain missions. I can't really talk about too much of the detail about what, what it's about. But you'd go and do your patrols. They call it orders for opening fire. There's a whole checklist of things that you need to tick off if you're going to actively shoot or engage an opposing force, the enemy. We'd have to hump up a hill, big hill, you know, with so much heavy equipment and see what's going on because a village might have had a suspected person there and we need to suss out, is there women and kids leaving, you know, is there only blokes there, are they looking hostile? You'd have a force there with the guys with the the metal detectors and the dogs trying to make sure that there was no mines. You're always in a high zone where you could go from zero to 100 miles, 5,000 miles an hour in an instant. One of the things in knowing that and and with my job was to intercept enemy communications. We'd go in and, yeah, yeah, sorry. You must have felt a lot of pressure. What if you made a mistake? Well, you don't want to make a mistake, no. There was a bit of a trio of uh, traumatic incidences earlier on in my second deployment in 2009. And I suppose a large part of what sort of was there when I was diagnosed with the PTSD or some of the some of the trauma, the big traumas that happened, the major traumas. So the first one was, um, it was earlier on in our deployment, we were only a, a couple of days into a month mission, right? This is pretty much, you know, sort of couldn't shower for a month and, and we were going to be outside the wire for that many days consecutively. I was, I was chatting with Brett Till a few days beforehand. So Brett Till was the team leader for the for the engineers who had the metal detectors and then also had the dogs. So we were exchanging information about the different ways that they use the IEDs because for me, in in my role, it was about using a phone to detonate an IED from his point of view was like, you know, unravelling IEDs that were on the ground buried in for cars to run over and then and then boom. So uh, we were a couple of days in. We were slowly moving through to, to get to the location that we needed to be at and um, there was some, some mines that needed to be disarmed. And so Brett, being the, the, the lead guy, and, and, you know, his guys had been out all night, we'd been moving all night, um, was, dis, was dismantling or making safe the IEDs. And um, uh, unfortunately, you know, what, he, he, he did the first one without going into too much detail, but there was the insurgents would connect multiple IEDs to this and so that was one of the things that blew up was one of the extra ones I think there was maybe three attached to the main one he he passed away the the, the bomb went off um, as he was um, he was just 
he was just down there. And then he was he wasn't he was no more. Um I remember the conversation I was having with my um, my good friend. We were there, we were having a, having a smoke, and we were talking about first aid. And, you know, what would you do if this happened? You know, just trying to roll in our heads fresh. There was the first mission. And then basically it was like talking about that, and then all of a sudden the incident happened, and it's like pretty much the smoke falls out of your mouth. So you're standing 40 metres away. What do you actually see from where you are? You just see an explosion. Oh. And then it was gone. When something like that happens, there's a whole thing that you do. You could be under attack. Mm. That could be something that happens and something you're going to be firing in, Where you know. That's happened. You can't be focused on that. That's what they want. You know, if you're being ambushed or something might have happened, you actually go to your station and you're ready to fight. There's a procedure that comes in place if something happens where... The guys that were immediate to him would have gone in and, and done it, but then you form a perimeter, you form security to make sure that everyone's going to be safe. When that's happened, you can actually work on the incident. It's just like the Dr. ABC, is make sure your danger response, airway, all that stuff, is that the first thing is to make sure that the danger is less threat so that you could go and get your injured guy or, you know, um, unfortunately for, for Brett, we just had to try and pick up some of the pieces that were left over, which is out of is horrible you know to bring home to the family and and for all those oh. things yeah it was it was it was it was very difficult I think he had a couple of kids he, I think he had a couple of kids he had two or three kids and you know a lovely lovely wife at home he, I think he would have been at that time mid-30s a few days later we were driving along again we just actually finished a break and we were all moving off and uh, I was on the back of, of a Bushmaster, which is essentially like a like a bus with a V hull on it. And I had I was on my turn to, to man the gun on the back. And um, we took off and all of a sudden I could hear the boom. That's the sound that I'll have in my head forever. And that boom. And then all of a sudden it was black and I was on my ass and my ears were ringing and it felt like my um, my life had kind of flashed before my eyes. It, I just thought, geez, I'm lucky because I, I sort of tried to blink, but I couldn't see anything. My hand, I could, I could feel my hands, and I could wriggle my toes, and I went, I got all my limbs, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm intact. And then from there, it's bang, get on, see the boys were all right, like it was a big heavy blast. So basically, this thing was a, a, a you know, a big, big, big twenty kilo that what we found out in the end that we ran over and. It blew the tire off. It blew the engine out of its mount, and all, like whoever was actually in the vehicle, you know, um, got shaken. And it was like oh, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Top Gun, where the, where he ejects and he hits the canopy over mm. his head. You know, these guys hit their heads pretty hard because the the force of the explosion. I was quite lucky in terms of not getting a traumatic brain injury. Lucky because I was in the manhole. I, you know, my shoulders were, you know, and obviously the the, the PTSD. But um, I didn't hit my head on on any roof. We secured all the guys and the casualties that were there. We're under attack. We've got to find out who's firing from where. And then a few days later, we finally had got to where we needed to be and there was some very, very heavy um, fighting that was going on. Another bloke, Damien Tomlinson, his vehicle ran over one of those bombs and um, he lost his legs. Oh. 
I've got so much respect for those guys there. They were such a tight call sign and unit. They were there, bang straight on and, and you know, providing the first aid and all under heavy fire, mind you. Just a testament to, to the type of people, you know, the legends that are, you know, my brothers in arms that, that were doing on, on that day, you know. That trifecta was the start, pretty much, of the long tour of what we had. And there was quite a lot of heavy fighting during that tour. You can't let what happened dwell on your mind too much because you're focused on the next job. We've got a whole mission to do and we still need to achieve that. So you kind of get that and you park it and you put it out the back of the parking lot there and, and you just forget about it. Behind the smiles and applause lies a darker story of life on the home front, where 22 veterans are committing suicide every day. Incidences happen, it's war, and bad things will happen and it, and it could be you. But you don't realise the severity of what actually, actually happens until you're there and you're experiencing it. It hits you like a, like a tonne of bricks. It's a big blow. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's emotional. With physical injuries and also mental injuries, they can be rehabilitated, right? And you could say it's close to 100%. But at the same time, you'll always know in the back of your head, Siobhan, that they're going to be susceptible to recurrence. If you don't do certain bits or if there's this pain or, or that it's not going to be as strong as what it was once. So in terms of the pain, yes, it's there. there's always there. I can work on reducing the pain. But then there's strategies and tools that I have now from both physical and mental that I... Um, you know, my self-care plan that I'm very, very strict with. Mm. I'm diligent mm. with it, you know. I do have flashbacks and I have nightmares and there's there's my up and down days. That's, that's all to do with, with my PTSD symptoms. So sometimes they might be worse at certain points. I have triggers there that, that send me back. Um, but then I've also got tools that, that enable me to, to not fall apart. People who experience trauma of any sort, whether it's military service or a traumatic event, can have flashbacks, can have extreme stress and anxiety responses that are far beyond what anybody who's never experienced that kind of stress can experience. I remember the day I came home because we were, we were flying home and, and uh, you know, I was so looking forward to, to seeing Claire and, and you know, and, 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 and the rest of my mates and family again. And when we landed, she was there all dressed up and everything like that. And she had this big thing in her head about how our reunion and repatriation was and we were going to be doing some stuff. So when we got home and we got to sort of drive home, I'd been taking some sleeping pills to sleep on the plane. You know, I was so excited that I couldn't. You know, and so I was really groggy. But pretty much, you know, um, she had this idea and we all went out with a couple of friends there. And I had a couple of beers and we had our feed. Uh, this was in the inner west of Sydney. And I think I pretty much like got really because of all the, the other stuff. I got, the alcohol affected me straight away and then I got too full because I, you know, hadn't had my big schnitty and chips for a while and, you know, like it's like when you're working so hard to a holiday or something like that and then you finally get to, a, to go on the holiday, your body goes, oh, I'm in relax mode now. I can yeah. start where you either start sleeping or you start, you know, you get crook or something because you've been pushing so hard to get to that end point. So when we got home, that's what happened with me, and and so um, 2009 was my my last trip, 
Yeah, obviously then there were some things there with the PTSD starting to uh, do a, a bit of alcoholism and, and a bit of prescription um, meds, taking those things, and, and, and that's when I sort of realised some stuff was going yeah. on. So how did you deal yeah. with that? It was it was like, you know, work hard and play hard, and it was a little bit of time until I got to um, sort of really start to decompress. And I knew that things were happening, but you kind of – you use a different excuse for what's actually happening. You know, you, you, you – give it a different title. So it's like, ah, oh, yes, I want to go out with the boys and have a good time and decompress. But you're sort of, you know, you're either drinking yourself stupid or, or you know, taking extra sleeping pills or whatever it might be. It started getting to a point I'm like, oh, this isn't really me. It's changing who I am. I'm not wanting to hang out with Claire as much. I want to, but then when, I, when I'm with her, um, you know, sort of trying to integrate into that sort of normal type of relationship again and, and get into normal life... Um, you know, wasn't quite working for me. Um, and, I, and I don't think it had manifested itself as bad until sort of I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm starting to, you know, uh, go off the rails a little bit there. Part of the protective mechanism when you're in a war zone is to protect your space. And so when people that have been in the military especially feel confined, they feel threatened. And that sense of threat isn't something that you can just let go of just because you're transferred out of a war zone into your own suburb. I actually didn't want to say that there was anything wrong with with what was going on. And so I self-referred to an external group and, and then got myself sorted out there. After I'd sort of sorted myself out, I'd gone and sought some help, some counselling, and then gone and saw, like, someone for, like, you know, the drinking course and talking about all these other things, you know, uh, why you shouldn't be taking prescription meds to go to sleep and all this stuff. You know, there's an annual review to say, okay, you know, is there any change to to what um, to what your situation is? You know, you're in a new relationship, you're doing this, this and this, has anything happened? So really the, the whole point of that is to make sure that no one else can come to you and try and blackmail you. So when you're saying these things... And, and so it's almost like they say that honesty is the full full disclosure and honesty is the best policy. And so I said to the reviewing officer, okay, this is, um, this is what's happened. Um, I've sorted it out. Um, I'm, I'm good to go. And then he was like, oh, okay, writing notes. And um, we had some really exciting stuff going on. Um, I was meant to be going like flying international somewhere. It was really exciting. I was the flavor of the month, you know, with the team and we were doing some really cool stuff. And I remember the day that I got called into the boss's office and I was meant to be flying out that afternoon. Everything, all the bags are packed. And um, he goes, well, what's up, Worms? And I said, well, what's up, boss? And he's like, oh, well, you know, you've, you've lost your clearance. So basically I couldn't do my job anymore. So they put me from this high niche and had all these skills flavor of the month down to the back of the queue store where I was just issuing out mobile phones to everyone. I went from, from me like feeling like I was a hero to zero like that. I've got feelings. I'm human to have felt like when everyone turned their back on me and then I didn't have any support. That was probably what made things worse and the snowball going on. Once I was sort of uh, relinquished of, of my role, it was pretty much like an, an administrative and sort of medical process to discharge me from the army. But for me at the time, I still was in the denial. You know, I was just replacing something else with another thing. So I got discharged from, from the um, army. And then the next day, you know, I was like, okay, well, what can I do to sort of 
fill that void now and not have to think about anything else. My whole existence and purpose had been stripped from me in a way that I wasn't ready to do it. I was sort of going off the rails again, you know, trying to find out and find a purpose, you know, um, having to deal with what's going on. It was at one point I was in a, 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 a furniture shop or something like that um, near our house and um, I heard the news on the radio that there was a there was a helicopter incident, hard landing where three Australian commandos died, and then oh, there's a whole massive casualties. And I yeah you know, I knew those boys well. Mm. I had had to leave the shop pretty much, and then I went to the car and and bloody bawled my eyes out and was a mess. My whole world had gone down, and and you know. Um, yeah, so that's when I sort of realised I really needed to go and get some help, go and seek it out, and, and I did. That's what I did. That was the day. We're quite open with our kids and, and everything, and put it in a, in a kid way. Well, I've also got an agreement with them, so then that way they know that if instead of going treading around eggshells around Daddy, if they know, they'll just tell me straight away, hey, Daddy, are you having a... You know, the look and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I think maybe I might be. Mm. We've all got a, a role to play. Calling in on your, the immediate support and the loved ones, a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, it's one of those ones that helps me with um, my PTSD symptoms. There's some stains on your photo. They all crack some your rusty I take a point of view that things happen for a reason. Those unfortunate incidences um, happen. Would I have not done the job? No. I don't have any regrets with that one. Invisible Injuries is a not-for-profit organisation improving the well-being, mental health and lifestyles of military veterans, first responders and their families suffering and experiencing the effects of post-traumatic stress injury. Contact them at invisibleinjuries.org.au.